All right, good morning. Everybody dry? Made it here? Dry? Good. Welcome. I'm Kenny. I'm one of our elders here at Grace Fullerton. Uh, if you're visiting with us this morning, uh, I want you to be welcome. Make sure you know your way around here. If you have any questions, uh, find me afterward or one of our uh, uh, ushers back by the door. They'd love to answer any questions you have. Um, we are uh, preaching through uh, the book of First Peter right now. We spent a year and a half as a church uh, preaching through the gospel of Mark uh, and finished that just before Christmas Advent season and thought uh, it would be neat to come out of the gospel of Mark where we spent a lot of time think, looking at Peter alongside of uh, uh, the other 11 with Jesus. And, uh, and then this letter from Peter, 1 Peter, uh, is a very different Peter than the Peter of the Gospels. Uh, and it's obvious uh, the, the, the effect of having encountered the risen Jesus Christ and been filled with the Spirit uh, changes everything. And, and Peter writes this letter to Christians who are, are scattered um, uh, and living like sojourners and aliens uh, where, they're living, where they're at and to encourage them to stand firm in the true grace of God. That's why we're calling the series uh, this, Standing Firm uh, in the True Grace of God. Um, uh, as we start, I, wanted to get, I want you to think about a time in your life where you really experienced a cross-cultural experience and you were the one out of place. You were somewhere where you were very clearly not from around there. You think of time, you've been somewhere where you were the, the stranger uh, in a foreign culture. Uh, maybe it was uh, overseas doing international travel. Maybe it was right here in the country. You're born and raised in California. You can go to some places in the U.S. and have a profound uh, cross-cultural experience, uh, can't you? Um, two stories that came to my mind uh, about this. One was uh, in China. My wife and I have adopted three times from China. So we've been to China three times. And the first time, uh, we went to get our little girl, Lily, who was 10 months old. And we had a total, at least I had, a total of three Mandarin phrases committed to memory. And I'd practice them. You know, it's tonal language, so you got to just say it just right. And, and I practiced uh, ni hao, hello. And I'm still probably saying that wrong. Um, wo ai ni, I love you, getting ready to have this little baby girl and a comfort her with, with I love you, and then xie which means thank you. And uh, that one, uh, I was ready to, to use. Any, any opportunity I had, I was xie people left and right. <laughs> McDonald's, get my Big Mac, xie room service coming up, medical clinic, doctors are helping, xie xie I'm xie everybody. And uh, by the time I got to the end of the trip, I'd gotten discouraged because I would say xie to everybody, and almost without fail, I would say xie and I would be met with this. Just no response, no verbal response back. No, I mean, if I was at McDonald's and said, she they'd kind of look to the next person in line like. So I got back and I remember talking to with the Kimbers, Tom and Sue Kimber, who uh, were here at Grace for many years and but had served as missionaries in China. And I said, Tom, what's the deal? I was one of my only three Mandarin phrases. I think I was saying it right, but most of the time, nothing. I got nothing, just you know, deadpan expression. And Tom got this that Tom Kimber smile and he said, Oh, it's because we say thank you too much. In China, he says, Chinese people, they think that Americans are way too crazy with the thank yous. They say thank you if you go above and beyond what's clearly expected of you in a situation. Go the extra mile, you do something unexpectedly kind. Well, then say thank you, but if you're just doing your job that you get paid for, why would you thank me, right? So I'm, it made all the sense in the world. I'm the one who's saying thank you everywhere, and the guy at McDonald's is like, I get paid for this. Why is this guy saying thank you to me, you know? Up next. <laughs> Not from around there. Um, my, yeah, my, my manners sort of gave me away. Uh, even within this country, my brother Seth got married uh, to an East Coast girl. If you know my sister-in-law, Emily, she's from Massachusetts. And uh, she loves Dunkin' Donuts. Um, and Dunkin' Donuts coffee, which I don't understand. But uh, when they got married, it was back in uh, Massachusetts. And uh, we were at the rehearsal dinner at this big restaurant that had a, a bar area, sports bar section of the restaurant. And we're in this other room, this little banquet room, and during the dinner, you can hear just crazy noise in the bar. Well, it turns out there's a Celtics-Laker game on, and so every you know blue-collar dude from this little town in Massachusetts was packed into this bar watching the game. Well, one of my brother's uh, groomsmen was named Brett Beatty. He grew up at our church, and he is a Laker, uh, Southern California Laker fan, sports fanatic, and sometimes 
in the rehearsal dinner. He heard all the noise and he snuck out of the rehearsal dinner to go in and catch a little bit of the game. And so he gets in there and it's just packed and he kind of squeezes in at the bar and he's just standing there watching the game on one of the screens. And at some point the Lakers got a steal or put up a three point good shot or something. And he didn't mean to do it, but he went, yes. Like this, he just did this little fist pump and immediately thought, oh, I should not do that here. And the bartender out of the corner of his eye went, he saw him and he walks down to Brett and he says, are you a Laker fan? <laughs> and he, uh, uh, yeah, I'm, I'm from Southern California. I'm here with this, you know, rece- you know rehearsal dinner. Uh, uh, he's just sort of stammering and he goes, get out of my bar. <laughs> and Brett laughed like that. <laughs> and he says, no, I mean it. Get out of my bar. And the guys on either side kind of looked at him like, you're, you're, and he just <laughs> snuck out. <clears throat> Up until that moment of the fist pump, It was imperceptible, he could have fit right in there. But as soon as he did that, he gave away his allegiance. He told everyone there, he is not from around there. And he even began to draw some of the heat of uh, of these Celtics fans. And so why am I saying this? Well, there's a theme in Peter's letter. There's a foundational way that Peter uh, thinks of the Christian life on earth as we wait for Jesus to return and establish his kingdom on earth as it is in heaven. And it's, and it's this, as uh, Christians are sojourners and aliens. This world is not our home. That the gospel and the Holy Spirit coming to dwell in people, causing them to be born again to a living hope, has an effect on culture, creates a gospel culture that the church becomes a people that no matter where they are, even if they're living in the midst of their own native culture, will be distinct in in ways, in, in, in clear ways, that Christians and the church stand out and they are holy, they're set apart, they're a people that are clearly for God's, uh, that are God's own possession. Um, we're strangers in this world. You know, so some examples of that in 1 Peter in chapter 3, he says sometimes uh, the Christian life will draw responses like this, being asked for a reason for the hope that's in you. You see how that points to conduct? He says, Christian, um, always be prepared uh, to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that's in you. Well, why would someone ask you about your hope? unless there was something about your life that pointed to a hope that you have that's different than people around you. You know, it makes me think of 1 Corinthians 15. Paul is saying, listen, if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead, then we have no hope of resurrection. And if this life is all that we get, then we Christians of all people ought to be most pitied. Well, there's an assumption that Paul has there, right? that living in light of this confident hope of resurrection and an eternal future with God that this life has a bearing upon changes everything. And living in light of that hope ought to look ways that are distinct in the culture that the culture would say, well, that's foolish. And so Peter says, be prepared to give it offense to a reason for the hope that's in you. It points to alien conduct as a Christian. Uh, in chapter 4, verse 4, look there. He says, some uh, will be surprised when you do not join them in the same flood of debauchery or just um, moral license and just living exactly how you feel, uh, just indulging your every craving, your every appetite. He says, some of those who are around you in your culture will be surprised when you don't just join them in the flood of debauchery, why, why would you not? Then there are, there are boundaries in the Christian life. The Christian says, no, in light of who God is and eternal future and, and, and what sin is, that's, that's not okay. So Peter's going to exhort Christians to some strange things, things that aren't just being nice, moral, upstanding people. But he's going he's gonna to call Christians who are slaves who have masters who are not believers, who are unjust and treat them harshly and even do evil against them, he's going to call those some Christian slaves to continue to return that evil with good and to endure suffering though mistreated. 
because you trust your souls to a faithful creator who is just and he will one day judge. And therefore you, he's going to say to these slaves, don't take vengeance in your own hands, but do good in return. That's crazy. That's countercultural. He's going to say to some wives in chapter three who are believers and whose husbands aren't to continue to be a godly Christian wife to your husband in gentleness and, and respect and submission and loving, even if your husband is not a believer, um, so that he might be one without a word by your conduct, Peter's going to say. That's strange, apart from the gospel. So the gospel is, uh, creates a people who are to stand out and be distinctly God's. And it's going to look alien in this world. Last week, Eric preached from three, verses 3 through 5. And right out of the gate, he didn't use the term alien about this. But the first alien sort of thing about the Christian life or the thing that should stand out about the Christian life or the church is its radical God-centeredness. That the Christian life, unlike surrounding culture, is one increasingly that does not push self to the place number one, but actually puts God in that place and humbles oneself before God, acknowledges that, that God has shown us grace, unmerited favor that we don't deserve, um, and lives a life of worship, a life lived for the sake of the one who called you out of darkness into light. The sort of life that says, I'm not my own. I was bought with a price. Therefore, I want to glorify God with my, my whole being, my body. And that ought to stand out in our culture, a, a God-centered life, a Christ-exalting life. And then right on the heels of this outburst of praise at the beginning of how great we have it in Christ, in our verses here, verses 6 through 9, Peter gets to something else that I think is distinctly Christian, unusual about the, the Christian life. And that is this, it's an alien joy that the Christian is able to have. This strange ability to genuinely rejoice and give praise and thanks to God from the heart, meanwhile grieved by various trials. That's, I think, a distinct, something that the gospel in, enables is to be grieved deeply, but also to rejoice sincerely and deeply. That's our, our theme this morning is, is trials and, and rejoicing in it. Gr although grieved, rejoicing. Let me read the verses uh, here, say a couple things uh, by way of intro, and then I'll give you the outline I'm going to follow. So 1 Peter 1, 6 through 9. Again, right on the heels of, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he's caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that's imperishable, undefiled, unfading, kept in heaven for you. And he says, you by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. So this burst of praise for the eternal future we're going to have with God and the hope that's there that comes through Christ. And then verse six, he says, in this, all that, you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes though it is tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Though you've not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with joy that's inexpressible, joy that's hard to just put into words. And he says, and it's filled with glory, obtaining the outcome of your faith, the salvation of your souls. So after this huge burst of praise, he says, in all that, you can rejoice, Christian, even though, and here's the context of it, you are grieved by various trials. This is a joy that actually grows in the garden of grief and sorrow and painful circumstances and trials. Peter says various trials, even though as we go through the letter, 
the particular sort of trial he is going to tend to focus on is being mistreated for the sake of the name of Christ in one way or another. So that's one he's going to highlight in particular. But right at the beginning of the letter, he opens it up more broadly than that and acknowledges the Christian life is one that's full of various trials. Trials is a broad word. It can mean external circumstances that make your life difficult, natural disasters, sickness, disability, injury, being sinned against, those things happening to someone else you love and therefore it causes distress in your life. So trials in that sort of external sense, but also the word trial can mean temptation. This internal pull of our culture to conform to the world rather than to be transformed by the renewing of our minds uh, and to live as God. So even temptation uh, is part of this word trial. Think about it. As a Christian, wanting to be holy for God is holy, living like in a culture like ours that's super materialistic, wealthy, ad-saturated, consumeristic, that's a trial, isn't it? It's constantly a pull to want more than you need, to covet what other people have and be discontent with what you have that you think you should or what you don't have that you wish you you did. Um, That's the same thing I just said twice, right? We can covet what people have and wish we had it. We can also look at what other people don't have that we are stuck with and we can be covetous that way, can't we too? And that's a trial as well for the Christian life. To not get sucked into the the mentality that says, my joy consists in a wealth of possessions. That's hard to live in a culture that's constantly saying the opposite. And so right at the beginning, Peter says that it's possible to rejoice even though you are grieved by various trials, painful circumstances, the pulling of a culture away from God towards sin and death. And in all this, he says, you rejoice. Okay, before we go on, I want this to be personal for us and not, we can do this, can't we? We hear a message and we think, man, you know who needs to hear that? You know who I need to send a link to so they go listen to that this week? So-and-so, because their trial. But no, I want you to think about the trials that grieve you. Maybe they're very small right now. Maybe it's hard to, to come up with a long list. Maybe for you, you need two pieces of paper to write them down. But whatever, take 30 seconds. I'm going to stop talking. I intend for you to actually do this, to, to stop and say, what trials grieve me right now? Temptations, maybe, trials, circumstances, write those down. I want something on paper, concrete, so that as we talk about these things, it's not abstract, but you're recognizing, no, these things Peter wants me to see applying to these trials. So go, write write, write something down. Everyone have something, various trials. Some of you might have written stuff down that you know is just very temporary, but nevertheless, it's hard. A week or so ago, as I was preparing to preach at La Mirada in the Lord's timing, and I think, ironically, gave me about a week of just brutal bronchial flu, just fevers and sweating for a week. And and it wasn't lost on me in the course of of preparing for this sermon on trials, that even just sometimes temporary trials that just lay you out and make you feel like you just want to die. And um, those are trials. But some of you might have written some things down um, that have been relentless and you can't remember a time that that wasn't a reality in your life and these things I think apply to all nature of trials so three things about trials that Peter wants us to understand that I think help us actually be able to rejoice uh, though grieved by them number one is this trials hurt and it's okay to say so it's okay to acknowledge Trials hurt, and it's okay to say so. You might say, well, duh, but there's this certain sort of uh, notion, I think, of the Christian life that can be prevalent, that the good, godly, Christian, faithful response to trials is just a stiff upper lip, right? 
As one pastor I read said, we can think that, that to be a good Christian means to always be happy, sweeping our grief under the rug of God's sovereignty. That's what a good Christian does. God is in control. He's sovereign. He has wise plans. His ways are higher than mine. I've learned from Job, put my hand on my mouth and just suck it up and just take my trials, right? God has a purpose in it. To grieve uh, might imply that I don't trust God in that. And that's not what Peter says here. He acknowledges that they have been grieved by various trials. The word is, the grieved by is the experiential word of the person suffering the trial. It means, I know that you have been made sorrowful by various trials. I know you've been caused pain by these trials. Peter is not Ned Flanders. Oh, that just everything's just okay. Just smile, oakley doakley. No, he's a realist. Trials grieve us. The Christian response to trials is not denial or pretending uh, like they don't really hurt. But it begins actually, a Christian response to trials acknowledges the painfulness of pain and the brokenness of, of, of living in a fallen world as a fallen people. And that it's hard. So, for example, Paul... 1 Thessalonians 4 is writing to Christians who have lost some loved ones and Jesus hasn't come back yet and they're not sure what to do with this and what's going to come about for these people that were in the Lord but they died and Jesus hasn't come back and they're distressed. And you know what Paul doesn't say? He doesn't say, we don't grieve. He says, we do not grieve as those who have no hope. That's what he says. The Christian grieves when loved ones die. We just do it in a different way. A grief that has a hope beyond the grave. So it's different, much better, but it's still grief. Not only are Christians um, encouraged uh, to be honest about grief, but we're encouraged to come alongside one another in our grief. Paul said, rejoice with those who rejoice and weep with those who weep. Don't just acknowledge the pain of your own trials, Acknowledge the pain of other people's trials. Have sympathy. Exercise empathy. Come alongside and share some of the burden of other people's pain. Weep with them when they weep, Paul would say. We're given permission as Christians to acknowledge the painfulness of trials and the painfulness of suffering. We're allowed to say so. Now, there's different ways in the Bible that people say so. And some of those ways, God says, that's sin and it makes me angry, right? Think about Israel in the wilderness, right? God delivers them with his mighty hand and overthrows Pharaoh and his army and brings them out um, with riches that they more than they can even carry. And he's going to take them to a land where he's promised them uh, to, to make them his people and establish them with more good than they can imagine. And along the way, day to day, they keep, you know, from one day to the next, their bellies are full. The next day, they're tired of manna and they grumble against God, Right. Or one day they're, 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 they're hot and thirsty, they don't see any water around, and they immediately revert to grumbling against God. And God gets angry, right? His anger is kindled toward them, um, whining about him and bad-mouthing him. And so there's a way we can talk about trials that is clearly ungodly and unchristian. And it's actually an affront to God's character. But on the other hand, the Bible actually shows us how to grieve with God. And the Psalms are filled with Psalms of lament that actually talk to God in some ways that are, some ways you can think sound a lot like that complaining of Israel. But there's there's a difference, I think, that we need to see. We can lament pain and trials without grumbling against God. Let me give you one example um, from Psalm 13. Turn, Turn to Psalm 13. Before we read it, I want to read one little thought here from another pastor, Tim Keller. So turn to Psalm 13. But Tim Keller wrote a book a couple years ago on prayer. It's just called Prayer. Put all, he put all his creative effort into the actual writing of the book and not the title of the book, apparently. But, um, but he talks about lament in it as a, as, a, as, a, as a part of the prayer life of the Christian. And he, he makes a great distinction here, I think, that's helpful for us in recognizing the difference between speaking about our pain in ways that, that actually is an affront to God and sinning against God and ways that God actually invites us to. Listen to this. He says, the Psalms actually show you that you can be unhappy in God's presence. That's allowed. 
to come and bring your unhappiness into God's presence. That's the way he'd put it. The Psalms, in a sense, give you permission to pour out your complaints in a way that we might think inappropriate if it wasn't there in the scriptures. In other words, can we talk like that with God? He says, but on the other hand, the Psalms demand that you bow in the end of the sovereignty of God in a way that modern culture wouldn't lead you to believe. The psalmists, despite their intensity and their shocking candor, they always pour out their white-hot feelings to God. That's a key here. No matter how angry and despondent you may be, if you use the psalms of lament to give you words for your prayers, you will in no sense feel stifled or bottled up. Rather, the language of the laments are so startling, they'll probably help you be more honest about your emotions than you would have been. The way David talks to God out of his grief and pain and hopelessness uh, is, is a model for us. It can actually lead us to be more honest about our pain with God than we're inclined to. Uh, then listen to this. He says, but the laments don't just help you be emotionally honest. That's the key. It, it's, they don't just help us go bleh, just, just, just vent at God. But they move past that. He says, they also bring you to the real God. Our great danger is that in the midst of our pain, we forget or deny God is a God of wisdom, power, and goodness. And the psalmist, struggling as much as any of us, will nevertheless draw us back toward that reality and anchor us in it. Does that make sense? It's like God says, be unhappy. Bring your unhappiness in here with me. Let's talk about this together. Don't forget who I am. And so, for example, Psalm 13, I picked it because it's a short one. We can just look at briefly, but here's David lamenting, being very unhappy in God's presence. He starts like this. How long, O Lord? Questioning God. How long? Will you forget me forever? So he's already insinuating right out of the gate that God might have been forgetful toward him. How long will you hide your face from me? That's how it feels to David. God just turned his back. How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord God. I want an answer, he's saying to God. Please light up my eyes lest I sleep the sleep of death. He's saying, don't leave me here in this despair. Lest my enemies say I've prevailed over him and my foes rejoice because I'm shaken. So this is very honest with God. There is complaint here. There is a sense of the injustice and, and God, do something. And then look what he says, though. It doesn't just end with emotional outburst. He says, but, he says to God, I have trusted in your steadfast love. He forces himself backward, right? Lord, you have shown yourself faithful. You are a God of steadfast love. I've trusted in it in the past. He says, my heart shall rejoice in your salvation. There's a, a confidence in the future that I have not seen the last of God's steadfast love, David says to him. I know I've not seen the last of it, God. And then verse six, he says, I will sing to the Lord because he's dealt bountifully with me. He doesn't feel like he's being dealt with bountifully right here at the moment, but he is acknowledging, God, you have dealt very bountifully with me. And I will sing to the Lord and I will again rejoice in your salvation. Do you see that mix of deep grief, but also rejoicing in the midst of it? In this I rejoice, though now I am grieved by various trials. Psalms of Lament help us, give us freedom. In fact, if we don't deal honestly, I think, with our hurt with God, and we just put on a face even to God, a pretend play that didn't hurt game with God, then I don't think we'll ever get to a point of actually rejoicing in trials, to denial or built up just resentment, I think, and bitterness toward God. But if we talk to God about it, and then even with one another in a way that we bring one another and help one another anchor our grief in the reality of who God is, well then, we might find this joy that the psalmists experience and that, that Peter experiences. And he's saying that these Christians, even that he's writing to, he knows they've experienced. So question before we move on. Are you, one, more uh, inclined toward the stiff upper lip group? 
Is that the way you're inclined? You tend to uh, just want to put on a good face. And you come to church and you got to put on your game face. You go to Grace Group, you put on your game face. You have conversations with other people and they ask, how are you doing? Put on your game face because that's the good Christian thing to do. And maybe this morning, God wants you to, to, to acknowledge or to realize that will not lead to joy ever. Talk to him about it. Maybe you need to go, go to the Psalms and begin reading through the Psalms and praying and personalizing some Psalms of lament for some of these things that you need to acknowledge to God. This is difficult. I need your help. On the other hand, I thought some of us might be in the venters category, right? We are all prone in some ways to just vent like Israel at the littlest inconvenience and, and sort of live our life with the assumption that any divergence from the norm and comfortable and easy is what gives and why, Lord? Even though it's just two stoplights that took you, you know, longer to get to work. And maybe that's the side of the coin that you're on. And, and you have no problem actually talking about your trials. In fact, a lot of the things you call trials trials, God would say, that's not really a trial. That's just your impatience. That's just your pride. You feel slighted by those people mainly because of your pride, not because they, you know. So maybe on the other hand, we need some, you need some balance. Talk to, you can talk to the Lord about that this morning. What do I need to hear? Which side of this coin am I on when it comes to, to being tried? So that's number one, is, is a realistic understanding of, of the painfulness of our trials, acknowledging it and dealing with God with it. Number two, Peter wants us to know, trials are necessary, he says. I'm guessing if I said, let's do some word association. Trials or suffering, the first word that jumps to your mind is not necessary, right? It's probably unnecessary. That's our knee-jerk toward things that inconvenience us or, or, or even worse, are painful, is why, Lord? And, and, and this is so unnecessary. And our first prayer is to just get me through this and get this behind. But Peter says right here, I'm not making this up, in this you rejoice, though now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved. Necessary to whom? NIV says you may have had to face trials. Well, had to? Who says I had to? Peter's implication is God. That God is sovereign over trials. So let's not sweep our grief under the rug of God's sovereignty, but let's not fail to acknowledge that God is sovereign over trials and that even in suffering, God considers necessary part of the Christian life. If necessary, you've been grieved. So the next logical question is necessary for what, right? If God considers trials necessary, why? Necessary for what purpose? Well, there's lots of purposes God has in, in suffering and in pain, the Bible tells us. The Bible actually tells us that a lot of that we might never know, right? The whole book of Job, one of the main points is God actually never tells Job why and Job comes to an understanding of, okay, I don't need to understand all the reasons you have, God, um, in order for me to entrust my soul to you. So he doesn't tell us all the reasons, but Peter actually does right here give us one reason why God does consider trials necessary, and it's verse 7. He says, necessary so that the tested genuineness of your faith, more precious than gold that perishes, although it's tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Your faith is something that is precious to God. In fact, so precious that he wants to refine it. He wants it to, to be increasingly more genuine. He wants to test the genuineness of it. That's what Peter says. That in trials, God is testing for genuineness, or he is uh, making it more genuine. So that's how it works with gold, right? Gold is this very precious metal. It's valuable, but it's got impurities in it, the way it's extracted from a mountain or from the ground. And so what do you do? You heat it up to the melting point, and it becomes liquid like this. I love this picture, by the way, because even the tools around the table sort of imply there's someone behind the, the scenes here who's actually doing something actively here, right? And so Peter says, it's kind of like this. You melt the gold down and impurities rise to the surface and are able to be skimmed off. And then that gold can be cooled and hardened. And the resulting gold is more valuable. It's more genuine. It's more um, pure. And Peter says, trials, 
have the same uh, effect on your faith that that does upon gold, that your faith is something precious to God. Look at verse 8. Peter's acknowledging to them that they have faith, a beautiful faith in Jesus, even though they were never eyewitnesses to Jesus and, and their love and affection for him. He says, though you have not seen him, you love him. Though you do not now see him, you believe in him and rejoice with inexpressible joy filled with glory. He says, even though that's based on our testimony, that, this, that God's given you eyes to see that that Jesus, he really is God's son and he really did rise from the grave and he really is coming again and he really is worthy of being the object of our faith. And Peter's saying to their faith, he's encouraging it, saying, even though you've not seen him and you don't see him now, you love him, you trust him, but not perfectly. None of us do perfectly. None of our faith is just perfect and pure. We're all prone to as, as, as strongly as our faith is in God, to, to keep resting our faith in other things. It's God plus money or God plus financial security or God plus social acceptance or God plus this one other relationship over here that'll complete me or God plus whatever, my physical strength and freedom from pain or God plus my health or God plus you know, whatever it is. And, and God has a purpose here and he wants your faith to be increasingly more genuine and your trust in him to be deeper and more confident because you have seen him to be faithful. You know, we sang in one of the hymns earlier, um, for in my weakness, uh, now I'm going to lose the line. What is it? In my weakness I have learned, your strength will uh, not, I should have written it down. You're not yet, your love will not forsake me. In my, in your, in my weakness I've learned that. So God brings us into trials so that in points of weakness and hurt and, and, and need that we would actually turn toward God and he would prove himself the only object of our trust and faith worthy and able to sustain us uh, in deep waters. And he shows himself again and again to be faithful. Let me give you two examples of that, two testimonies of it, one from the Bible and one from a week ago that I read on, at the Gospel Coalition blog, a testimony of, of a, a man, a husband, and a dad. The first one is, is Paul. In 2 Corinthians chapter 1, he's writing, and he, and he doesn't go into details, but he tells the Corinthian church uh, of a time in the past that he and his co-laborers, the other people serving with him on the mission field, he said, experienced a measure of affliction that was so severe, he says, we were so utterly burdened beyond our strength that we despaired of life itself. Missionaries go through that on the mission field. Points of such hopelessness or frustration or affliction or persecution, whatever it was, he doesn't tell us here, but he says it was so bad that we just despaired of life itself. He says, we felt we'd receive the sentence of death, that that was it, that God just take me home, Peter, Paul said. And then in the next sentence, Paul says this of that past trial. He says, but that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He's saying that crucible of affliction that made me want to die, Paul says. Again, there's necessity language in here. That was to make us rely. God was doing something here. He was turning our reliance fully to him. The, God, the only God who has the power over the dead, the resurrection from the dead. And we turn to him. And then he says, he delivered us from such a deadly peril and he will deliver us. On him, we have set our hope that he will deliver us again. So you also must help us by prayer so that many will give thanks on our behalf for the blessing granted us through the prayers of many. I think there's this, this, this you see it in, in short, brings them into this point of affliction, despaired of life itself. It drove them to their knees and a, and a deeper reliance on God, a God, please show up. And in this case, the trial, they, God brought them through, delivered them from whatever it was. And what happened as a result? some confidence strengthened in Paul that he will deliver us again. He delivered us and he will deliver us. And you see that confidence in him saying to the Corinthians, so would you join me in prayer so that God would continue to show himself as deliverer in the future? And 
God has purposes in it to, to refine our faith and, and, and make it deeper and more genuine. In fact, I want to back up real, real fast. I meant to say this, but in 1 Peter 1.5, there's a connection to something that Eric pointed out last week. <clears throat> Notice that Peter says that you have this, Christian, you have this inheritance that's imperishable and it's being kept in heaven for you. But not only is it being kept in heaven for you, but verse 5, you, by God's power, are being guarded through faith for this salvation ready to be revealed. Eric made the point that not only is God keeping an inheritance for you, but he is actively keeping you for it, that he is, he is working in your life so that you will not fail to receive it, that you will endure in faith in him to the end. And this is how Peter says God is doing that, that trials are in part how God is refining our faith and strengthening it so that one day when Jesus comes back, we will have trusted him until the end. Paul gives an example of that in, in that situation. But here's the other one. I read this on the Gospel Coalition blog about a week and a half ago. As I'm in First Peter here and thinking about being grieved in deep trials, uh, I, I came across this headline. We lost a child and gained something greater, was the article. We lost a child, gained something greater. That's right at the top of the list for me of things that I imagine deep waters that um, I, I can't quite imagine what that would be like. It's about as painful as I can imagine. And here's this guy, a husband and a dad, not a pastor, not no super Christian. He's a sports writer at Village Church where Matt Chandler is a pastor. And, and he wrote about his experience of he and his wife just a, a few weeks before their due date, um, the heartbeat uh, stopped and they discovered that the baby had died in the womb. And, and he goes into detail of, of, of all of the account of this and, um, and the experience of this deep, painful trial that's still going on in, in their life. And he starts his article like this, or his, what he writes, with this quote from Spurgeon. He says, uh, Spurgeon said, it would be a very sharp and trying experience to me to think that I have an affliction which God never sent me. That the bitter cup was never filled by his hand. And that my trials were never measured out by him nor sent to me by his arrangement of their weight and quantity. Spurgeon says that would be grievous to think of that I had, that God was not being careful about what is necessary to give. And so this guy, Kyle Porter, writes this. He said, a month ago, I couldn't have known the depth or weight of those words. And now I can. And he recounts all the details of delivering the baby and of spending a day in the hospital holding her with their other two older children and giving her a name um, and picking out a casket that's like this size. And, and actually, he, he, he put the casket in the ground and the, and the, and the service um, honoring this little girl's life and, and clinging to God with all these other Christians in their church and just weeping. And, and at the end of this, here's what he wrote that just gripped me. I need to hear testimony. I need to hear testimony like this because I've had some grief in my life, but of a whole different category than this. And when I read or I hear somebody in that sort of situation talking like this, I'm encouraged because I don't know what future has for me. In fear, how would I possibly weather that? And here's this normal husband and wife and by God's grace, they're, they're weathering it and, and talking like this. Listen to what he says. He says, for a lot of us, myself included, Christianity's come easy. There've been no suffering. There's been no pain. There've been few questions. There's been no reason not to trust God and not to call ourselves Christians. And now there is, he says. Now we have known unimaginable deaths, meaning his wife and, and he. The sorrow that flowed that week is an unspeakable thing. And we can truthfully say, here's the testimony. We can truthfully say that the Lord is good in both the joy and the sorrow, if not greater in the sorrow, he says. The Lord is good and his understanding of that becomes even greater in this sorrow. He says, that was what we tried to point to all week, that we do not hope in our children. We do not hope in each other. We do not hope in our friends or families or in anything outside the crucifixion and resurrection of Christ. That's all in Christ alone. This was a wild reminder of that, one we didn't want, but always need, he said. He said, my friend Nathan said that until that week, loving the Lord amid sorrow this deep was only a theory for many of us. Just a theory. 
Bible tells us that you can rejoice in a trial that deep. But he says, putting a baby in the ground makes it real. And not just for us, our friends mourn deeply with us. A rich reminder as I've ever had of God's purpose in ordaining a deep community of friends. And then he says, Peter would call all of this sanctification. He would call this refining. And he quotes our passage here that, that we're in this morning. That if necessary, being grieved by trial so that this faith can be tested and the genuineness can be shown in the end to result in praise and honor and glory. He says, As, uh, if I'm honest with myself, this is a good thing for me. Would I choose this path? Never. But it is ultimately good for me and my family. And that's a really difficult thing to admit. So it doesn't even end with a nice tied bow on it. He's still saying that is really hard for me to admit. But nevertheless, he's testifying from the crucible. He's saying, God has shown himself to be worthy of my trust. Is that my battery going crazy? Or is it just, it's a magic. God wants to refine our faith, he says, so that he can reward our faith. Look at verse 7. In the end, this is what it's all aiming at. God's doing the refining so that this tested genuineness of faith may be found to result in praise and honor and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. One day, Christ will return. And at that point, praise and honor and glory will be found to result in this. And I don't think that Peter's talking about praise and honor and glory toward God, which will definitely happen on that day. But in this context, Peter, I think, is actually saying what he, similar to the end of the letter when he says, when the chief shepherd appears, you will receive the unfading crown of glory, that your faith will be commended by God. There will be, a, at the, a sense of the finish line, a well done, as Jesus put it. Listen to this. This is John Piper describing the, this day of, that Jesus is going to return, and this is going to happen. I think he, he says it well. He says, when Jesus appears in glory, two things are going to happen. Number one, his glory will be magnificently reflected in the mirror of our faith. In other words, our faith isn't the end, uh, the end object of the worship and the praise and glory and honor. It's reflecting something greater. Our faith is, is in the trusted one and the hoped for one and the rejoiced in one. His glory will shine in our faith and hope and joy. And the more pure and refined the gold of our faith, the more clearly his beauty and worth will be reflected. See, the, our faith points to the one who's worthy of that sort of faith, right? whose promises are, are sure enough, a uh, guarantee of that faith that makes that faith well-placed, right? That's what he's getting at. Then he says, but since God exalts all that exalts him, he, God, will give praise and honor and glory to our faith. He will say, well done, good and faithful servant. He will give us the unfading crown of glory. There's reward, the smile, the well done of our God and our Savior Jesus. This is why God deems trials necessary so that that day will happen. Last thing, short point, but this, trials have an expiration date. All trials have an expiration date. Trials will not last forever. Peter says um, these trials are for a little while, verse six. Even now for a little while, if necessary, you've been grieved. And that might strike you as naive or insensitive or dismissive based on what's written on your paper in front of you. Maybe some of the trials you have in mind, you've known all your life. You might, I try to imagine Peter saying to someone with chronic pain or in a, in a wheelchair. I think Will York, years ago, he was a member at Grace for a long time. He's moved away since, but he was an example of someone in life where every day he had, he had shooting pains uh, in limbs that he couldn't even feel and, and, and daily relentless sorts of, of pain. And, and you hear Peter saying, well, God's just grieving you for a little while. It doesn't feel like a little while, but I think Peter would gently say, yes, but um, what all is in view for you right now? Is eternity in view? It is for Peter. We have this living hope through the resurrection of Jesus from the dead and an eternal, imperishable inheritance that's being kept for us. That's why Peter can say, even though you are grieved by various uh, trials for a little while. I want to finish with a visual here. I stole it from Francis Chan, although he used it for a different point to make. It was a good point, but it also works for my point. I just need a volunteer. Can you help me, Jess? 
All right, take this right here. All right, just start walking that way. We'll see if we can. And when you get to the corner there, who's there? Connie, can you just put out a hand? Hold, hold some of that rope. Here we go. Caleb, why don't you hold it right there? So let's keep this up where people can see it. All right, keep going. Keep going. Keep going. Just keep pulling. No, no rope burns. Don't give Connie a rope burn. All right, keep going. Rich, would you grab that right there? All right. I want, I want it to come all the way back up to Brandon, right up here. Just, just keep it visual. Okay. All right, so obviously this rope has an end. It's only 100 feet. It's from Home Depot. But just as an illustration of your life, including eternal future. And this little section right here is our life on earth. This is your life on earth. And so of this little section of life, Paul would say things like this. I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that will be revealed to you. See, it's not as insensitive when you, you see it visu visually, right? It's actually true. Or he would say this, so we do not lose heart, Paul would say. Though our outer nature is wasting away, our inner nature is being renewed day by day as we look to what? Not the things that are seen, but the things that are unseen. The things that are seen, Paul says, are transient. They're fleeting. They won't last. The things that are unseen are eternal. That's why Peter says in a little while, he wants Christians to be encouraged. Even if every minute of your life, Christian, was difficult, from the, from the cradle to the grave, in perspective, this is the most grief you will know. Temporary grief, eternal joy. That's a reality. That's this unseen thing that Paul says we, we fix our eyes on by faith. And the scary reverse is also true. If you're not a believer, if you've not trusted in Christ and your sin hasn't been dealt with, and you are not right with God, then this life right here, no matter, even if it was filled with comfort and ease and pleasure and joy, that would be the, the, the extent of it. Joy temporarily and grief forever. That's sobering. And Jesus says, you don't, it doesn't have to be that way. I came and I died, I rose. You can have a resurrection hope that all of this would be joy. And this would be temporary. If you've not trusted Christ, I pray you would. We sang about it. You guys can put that down. Your arms are getting tired. Just you can drop it on the ground there. We need to remember this visual because the problem is as soon as we go out that door, tomorrow morning, the hard things in my life and in your life can just get all, get all of our attention again, right? That's just all we can see. Again, we've got to keep this in view. But, you know, we sang it, it is well with my soul. Um, my sin, oh, the bliss of this glorious thought. My sin, not in part, but the whole is nailed to the cross and I bear it no more. Praise the Lord, praise the Lord on my soul. We're gonna re return tonight and uh, have Lord's Supper together, a reminder of what Jesus did so that this can be the extent of our pain and this can be the extent of our joy. I would invite you to come back for that. Let me pray as we close uh, and then with this hymn. Uh, Father, we thank you for the greatness of our hope. Uh, Lord, we, we need your help to really comprehend it uh, in the heart in a way that, that sees the perspective of it and can, can somehow get, a, get a, a, a taste of how eternal glory stacks up next to temporary pain. Lord, I pray you would meet each person here uh, in whatever it grieves them, Lord. I pray that, that you would bring us this, this sort of inexpressible joy that's filled with glory, Peter talks about, that we would know that uh, joy in the midst of sorrow. Uh, and thank you, Spirit, that you help us in this, that we're not left alone just to muster enough faith, but God, you are actively helping us in the midst of trials, Lord. I pray that you'd help us to not be grumbling people against you, in the, in the process. I pray that we would entrust our souls to you. Uh, Lord, I pray that you would uh, comfort us and assure us with the necessity. I pray that that would change the way we pray about trials, not just get me through it, Lord, but refine my faith. Uh, and Lord, I pray that, um, that there would be a, a great hope that we have of um, uh, th that this will one day soon be over uh, and joy forever. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.